once a month I have this incredible privilege of sitting down with a group of guys from all across the city. Um, I'm the youngest guy in the group. Most of the guys are 15, 20 years older than me. Um, one of the guys in this group is literally 52 years older than me, which is amazing. And uh, we sit down once a month and we hang out and we pray together and we share stuff that's going on in our hearts and we talk about what we're seeing in the world and in our community. And so uh, a couple of months ago, I was sitting down with this group of guys and we were, we were just kind of astounded. One of the guys at the table said, can you believe we're about to come up on the two year anniversary of COVID? kind of showing up and reframing the world as we understand it. And it was like, you know, in some ways, the last two years have felt like a blur, and in some ways they felt like they have been here for like 30 decades. Do you have kind of that weird feeling in the midst of COVID, like time is weird, it doesn't work the way it used to? And so we are like, man, I can't believe it's been two years. In some ways it feels longer than that. And so we were, we were talking about all of the different things that we've kind of seen and experienced and felt and in our communities and the churches that we serve and in the city and the nation and the nations around the world. And one of the guys in that group who's about 20 years older than me, he said something that stuck with me. He said, over the last two years, he goes, I've come to see something very clearly. And I'm like, okay, what are you seeing clearly? He goes, I, I am seeing humanity gripped by a spirit of confusion. He says, for the last two years, he goes, in just crazy ways, he goes, I see humanity being gripped by this spirit of confusion. Where things that used to seem clear don't feel clear anymore. Things that used to seem obvious don't feel obvious anymore. Things that used to be received as truth are not received as truth anymore. He goes, there's just this spirit of confusion over uh, almost every area of society. And like, we could just, I haven't even looked at the news this morning. We could literally just test this right now. We could pull up the news feed and I guarantee you almost everything, every headline for the most part is just a declaration of humanity's confusion. We see it everywhere. We see confusion around justice, what's right, what's wrong, how do you make something right once it's been made wrong. We, we see confusion around gender, sexuality, relationship, politics, education, Family, like, did you want some more depression? I can just keep going. You guys can shout these things out. We, we, we see confusion absolutely everywhere. We see confusion on the local stage, the national stage, the, the global stage. We see confusion around our response to, to violence and to war. What do we do here? What's happening here? How do, we, how do we respond? Everywhere you look, I believe, you see this spirit of confusion at work in the world all around us. In fact, I believe in a lot of ways we're experiencing an element of what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. I think we're living in a moment very similar to what Paul was describing in Romans chapter one. I'll just kind of give you the quick summary. You should go back and read it this week. Paul says, wherever the truth of God is exchanged for a lie, what results is confusion. That's my summary of Romans 1. He goes, when the truth of God is exchanged for a lie, when people begin to worship created things 
our work, our relationships, our sexuality, our finances, our entertainment, our comfort, whatever it is. When we begin to worship created things instead of worshiping the one who created all things, he said what happens in the minds of humanity is all of a sudden you enter into this downward slope of confusion and degradation and perversion and violence and all sorts of stuff stirs up in the heart of humanity. And this is the phrase out of Romans chapter one that just grabs my heart. He said, and over time, when you give yourself to the worship of something false, when you give yourself to the worship of something false, your mind is darkened and you become foolish, but you think you are wiser than everybody else. And I go, I don't know if there's a chapter in the Bible that describes the state of humanity any more clearly in some ways right now. This spirit of confusion. I don't know if you've ever noticed, like confusion very rarely brings out the best in us. Have you ever been in a state of confusion and then looked at someone next to you and go, man, I'm really thriving right now. <laughs> Years ago, like being in a foreign country with one of our pastors here at Ethos, Andrew, who helps pastor the marathon community. And he and I were trying to get back to the States and just about an hour before our flight takes off, someone comes over the intercom and announces that all of the flights have been canceled and we couldn't understand why they're being canceled. And there was this mad rush to the counter and all of a sudden we're all there at the counter and, and we can't speak their language and they can't speak our language and people are pushing on us and shoving and yelling and screaming and trying to get flights. And, and I, you know, in that moment of mass confusion, I did not look at Andrew and go, man, this feels great. I feel alive right now. Like, I know it's like a confusion. Guys, when it, when it grips our hearts, it tends to bring out the worst in us. I think sometimes in the midst of confusion, it's easy to just kind of shut down, to put our heads in the sand. And this is what I see those of us in wealthy contexts doing all of the time. If you live in America, you're wealthy, spoiler alert. Like by the world standard, we're wealthy. And in wealthy contexts, when moments of confusion hit, it's so easy to put our head in the sand and to go, maybe I'll just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe I can entertain my way out of this or uh, binge my way through Netflix out of this. Or maybe I can go on enough trips and have enough experiences and do enough things to, to kind of numb the frustration of this confusion. And guys, I just want to say this to you. God did not put you on the earth to put your head in the sand in seasons of confusion. It's not what you're made for. Sometimes we shut down. Some, sometimes in the season of confusion, there's this stuff that just begins to burn inside of us, but it feels like it's shut up and it begins to stir us and frustrate us and we don't know what to do with it. Some of you over the last couple of years, you see all the confusion and you know you want to say something. You don't know how to say it, where to say it, when to say it. And so, man, it just burns like a fire in your bones. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, that fire comes out in all the wrong places. Comes out on your Twitter feed. <laughs> comes out in that comment thread on your aunt from Kentucky's Facebook rant, you know. This will fix the world. <laughs> And you get a call from your mom. It did not fix the world. It ruined Thanksgiving. That's what happened. <laughs> Confusion. Frustration. Man, what, what, what do we do with all of this? You weren't made to stick your head in the sand, to shut down. You weren't made to keep the truth all shut up and contained inside of your little small circle. 
I believe in moments like this, the spirit of God is beckoning for the sons and daughters of God to gently, compassionately, with wisdom and strength, rise up. I love Romans 8, 19. It says, the earth is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. In our life, in our words, in our action, in the way that we steward our time and our energy, all these things, that there's something about your life that God has created you to live in such a way that your life brings clarity amidst great confusion in the world all around you, that people look at you and go, man, even before they can discern it, they go, there's something different about Phil and Sarah. There's something different about Josh and Molly. There's something different about Jen and Corey. There's something different about Mark. There's something different. And there's something about your life that brings clarity where confusion has been reigning. And this is what I want us to wrestle with this morning is as as the people of God, what does it look like to live lives that are marked by courage and clarity in a world that is dominated by confusion? What does it look like to live lives marked by courage and clarity in a world that is dominated by confusion. And I love this moment in Mark chapter 6, 16 because, or Matthew chapter 16, because Jesus is gonna bring the disciples to the headwaters of human confusion during their day. He's gonna bring them to the place where human confusion was on full display and it's gonna be in the context of that display of human confusion that Jesus is gonna look at his disciples and to go in the midst of all of this confusion, do you have clarity about who I am? Because Jesus knew that clarity would bring breakthrough in places where confusion once dominated. And this is the way that it unfolds, Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 13. Are you guys with me this morning? A little little quiet, little kind of nine o'clock-ish, kind of chill, kind of sit back. I want to make sure you're here. Matthew chapter 16. I want to read through the whole text, and then we're going to come back and try to unpack this together. Verse 13 It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I don't know if you write in your Bibles or highlight in your phone, but you should underline that phrase, Caesarea Philippi. It's important. So when they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? He, He Googles himself. I love this moment. They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, but Jesus looked at his disciples. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That was Simon's dad's name. He says, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. So he gives him this new name here. And on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, so much stuff we could talk about in here. We could wrestle with that unusual statement in verse 20 where Jesus says, hey guys, I'm operating on a divine timeline and I don't want you to go tell everybody this just yet. We could talk about that. We could talk about what it means to loose and unloose things. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Like, you know, what's he talking about? All of those things are relevant, but this morning I want to just hone our attention on what it looks like to live as men and women of courage and clarity in a culture that's marked by confusion. And in order to to do that, you have to understand not just what Jesus is saying here, 
not just what he's teaching, not just what he's demonstrating, but you have to understand where this story is unfolding because I would argue that unless you understand where a story is taking place, you probably don't fully understand the story. If I had you read the book, The The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, but you did not understand Narnia, the whole story is really weird. If I told you about the road trip that I took with my friends in college to Manhattan, but you didn't have any context for what New York City looks like, the sights, the smells, the sound, the whole story would be disoriented unless you understand the place. And here's what you have to know. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is gonna have this clarifying conversation with his disciples, but he's gonna have this conversation in a setting that none of them would have seen coming. If you were to get out a map of of Israel where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. And if you were just to, to mark out all of the stories, almost all of the stories during Jesus' three years of earthly ministry happened in one of three regions. The region of Galilee, kind of the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, or in the region of Samaria that all of the Jewish people tried to avoid. That's another sermon for another day. Or down in the region of Judea where the city of Jerusalem was. So much of Jesus's ministry just happened in one of those places or on the way to one of those places. But then you get to Matthew chapter 16 and any person that was familiar with the area would read this and go, wait, Caesarea Philippi? Jesus asked, what, but where? (laughs) Because this is not where any of them expected to go. Caesarea Philippi was not on the way to any of the places where Jesus and his disciples thought they were supposed to go. It'd be like you telling your friends, hey, we're gonna go to the beach this weekend. We're going to Destin down in Florida. But on the way to Destin, we're gonna stop in Chicago. And you're like, wait, like, have you ever seen a map? Dave, have you ever seen a map? Like, Chicago is way out of the way. It doesn't make any sense. This, this field trip that Jesus is gonna take his disciples on, in no way was it on the way to anything that made sense to his disciples. It was 30 miles north of any of the regions where they ever ministered. And this is not 30 miles in a car or on a train. This is 30 miles by foot. Raise your hand if you walked 30 miles anywhere this week. That's what I thought. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's like, hey, let's have a quick conversation, but first let's walk to Murfreesboro. Hey, can't we just talk right here? (laughs) Jesus like, no, Murfreesboro, it's Murfreesboro. (laughs) They walk 30 miles out of the way. It's inconvenient, but it's not just inconvenient, it's uncomfortable. Caesarea Philippi, it was the sin city of their day. It was the strip in Vegas. It was Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. It was the red light district of Amsterdam and maybe worse than those things. When you'd walk into the region of Caesarea Philippi, you'd see Mount Hermon. It's like when you come into Nashville and you see the Batman building, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm in Nashville. It's this, it's this landmark you couldn't miss. You would come into Mount Hermon and at the base of Mount Hermon is this cave that the locals called the Gates of Hades. Maybe you are familiar with that as we just read it in the text, but the cave at the base of Mount Hermon, every spring when it would rain, water from these underground springs would come up out of the, the gates of Hades and the people of the day believed that it was the gods of the underworld, demons of the underworld coming out to bless people. And so folks would show up from all over the world and it was just kind of like, hey, what happens here stays here. And they would come to worship the demonic there in Caesarea Philippi. On one side of the cave was a temple to Caesar. On the other side of the cave was a temple to Zeus. And right in front of it was a temple to this God named Pan. And they would come and they would worship all of these gods, all of these demon spirits with perverted acts of sexuality and bestiality and all sorts of things. And sort of the, the, the thought of the day was anything goes here. 
And this is the place where Jesus takes the disciples to have a conversation about who he is. It was a place where the full freight of human confusion was on display. Just imagine if Josh Willis, our beloved student pastor of 10 years, loaded up the youth group into a van and took them to Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> Every parent is waiting and they're like, we gotta fire that dude. Like something's wrong with him. You, parents, you need to know, you would have fired Jesus. Uncomfortable, inconvenient place. And yet I believe it was completely purposeful. Jesus takes them in, into this setting and just imagine these disciples, they no longer feel like they have home field advantage. <laughs> They're out of their comfort zone and Jesus says, hey, let's have a quick conversation. You know, so often when Sydney and I wanna have important conversations with our boys, we'll take them out of their element because we know that, man, we could have that conversation on the couch while we're watching a football game, but if they're gonna remember it, if they're gonna learn it, we need to take them beyond where they feel comfortable. And so he takes them into this uncomfortable setting and I want you to notice Jesus is gonna begin this conversation and the conversation is gonna be built off two questions. What is the culture's perception of me? And then what is your perception of me? Look back at verse 13. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This was a common thought during the days of Jesus, not just among the religious crowd. This was a common thought amongst the seculars of Jesus' day. Maybe you remember this in Mark chapter six, verse 16, after John the Baptist had been crucified, executed, his head cut off because he was allegiance, his allegiance to Jesus. Herod, the man that had him killed, hears about all that Jesus is doing. And in Mark chapter six, he goes, hey, I think Jesus is actually John the Baptist resurrected. There's this common thought amongst both the religious and the unreligious of Jesus' day that he was not just a good teacher or a powerful teacher or a bold teacher or a kind person. They literally thought that he was a resurrected prophet that had been sent to stir up the people. And in some ways, this is a really positive view. I just wanna be really clear. Like they go, man, he's bold like John the Baptist who had died about a year before this moment. Or man, he is powerful like Elijah who had been taken to heaven 800 years before this moment. Or he is compassionate like Jeremiah who had died 600 years before this moment. The common cultural perception during the days of Jesus was admirable, but it was not correct. Guys, I just want you to hear this. It is possible to admire Jesus, but to fund fundamentally misunderstand who he is. It was true then and it is true now. If you talk to almost any religious person in our world, any casual Christian in our world, any secular humanist in our world, you will probably hear a spirit of admiration but almost also confusion around the person of Jesus. Whether you're talking to a Muslim or a Mormon or a Hindu or a Sikh, a Jehovah's Witness, a secular humanist, a casual Baptist. <laughs> we can go down the line. It's true in the world, it's true in the church. There's a lot of admiration for Jesus and there's a whole lot of confusion about who he actually is. Jesus says, who, who do they say that I am? They go, they think you're pretty awesome but they're pretty confused. 
Think about a friend of mine who would describe himself as a secular humanist. And I go, hey, tell me about Jesus. He and I have had this conversation many times. He goes, Jesus, he goes, the world is better because of Jesus. Nice, kind, may have done some powerful things, peaceful, his teachings are good. Like, that's my friend's view. And I go, okay, but is he God in the flesh, died for the sins of the world, raised from the dead, returning again? He goes, no, man, that's, that's kind of weird. That's kind of out there. I go, no, that's who he is. That's who he claimed to be. And as C.S. Lewis says, either he is a liar or he is a lunatic. He is nowhere in between. A guy that walked around on the earth proclaiming to be God, making human beings right with God, if he's not telling you the truth about that, he's demented. Lots of opinions on Jesus. Lots of admiration for Jesus. Lots of confusion about Jesus. And Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? Oh, man, they admire you. And then he looks, and guys, this is one of the most important moments in their life. It's going to be the most important moment in your life. Jesus looks and he goes, but what about you? Like, who do you say that I am? And whether you know this or not, there's gonna be a moment for every one of us where we stand before a living God. You're gonna stand before a living God. I don't know when it's gonna happen for you, but you will stand before a living God in all of his might, in all of his power, in all of his glory, and he's not gonna look at you and go, hey, what was your parents' theology? <laughs> what did your friends think about me? What did your spouse think about me? What did your roommates think about me? What did your favorite podcaster or professor or pastor think about me? He's gonna look at you and he's gonna go, what did you speak with your lips and what did you demonstrate with your life? Jesus looks at the disciples. He said, what do you believe? I love verse 16. Peter goes, you are, the, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one that we've longed for. You're the one that we've waited for. You're the one that every prophet has pointed us to. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. <laughs> I love that Peter goes, hey, I'm just a fisherman, but here's what I know is you are the son of the living God incarnate in the flesh. Now what we'll learn in the weeks to come is that they had no idea what that really meant for Jesus. But here they had clarity about the identity of Jesus. This is who you are. Here they were standing at the headwaters of human confusion. Every thought, all this on display all around them. Jesus goes, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Who do you think I am? You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And I love Jesus' response. Like, it's, it's cool. Peter confesses Christ. He proclaims Christ. And then there's this moment where Jesus begins to respond to Peter's confession. Look at verse 17 with me. He's <laughs> like, this is, this is amazing. I almost imagine Jesus laughing with joy here, not in mockery, but just, I don't know how you picture Jesus speaking. I think sometimes when you picture Jesus speaking, it's like this old English King James accent, you know, like very official. I just imagine Jesus smiling and he laughs and he's like, oh my goodness. He goes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Peter goes, I mean, Jesus goes, hey, Peter, your clarity here is supernatural. You're operating in a place of supernatural clarity about who I am. In other words, you didn't come to believe this because you're the smartest person in the room, because you read all the right things and did all the right, that's, 
That's great. He goes, what's happened here is a supernatural miracle. Your human heart has been opened up to the reality of who I am. Guys, I don't know if you know this or not, guys and gals, I don't know if you know this or not, but anytime you see someone professing Christ with their words or their actions, you are witnessing a miracle on the earth. It's a supernatural reality. He goes, whoa, that's supernatural. And I don't want you to confuse supernatural revelation with spiritual passivity. (laughs) Supernatural revelation and spiritual passivity are not one and the same. Peter was not at home just binging Netflix and God showed up in his room and suddenly revealed everything he needed to know. How does spiritual revelation work? It's, It's grace. God shows up when you weren't looking for him. He comes looking for you. And that grace leads to obedience in the context of community over lots and lots of time with the element of truth and the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace and obedience and community and truth and time and the work of the Holy Spirit over and over and over. And suddenly Peter goes, whoa, you're not just a carpenter, not just a miracle worker, not just the guy that helped me catch a whole lot of fish and then leave them on the shore. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This is a supernatural revelation. It is supernatural clarity. Guys, our world that is marked by confusion does not just need educated clarity. It needs supernatural clarity about the identity of Jesus, the son of the living God. Supernatural. It's powerful. I love the way that it keeps going. He goes, man, your your clarity is powerful, Peter. Verse 18, he says, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is such a cool moment. You know, Jesus loved to give nicknames. I don't know if you ever had a friend in your friend group that likes to give nicknames. I had a friend like that when I was in elementary school. He'd give all of his nicknames. My fourth grade nickname was Grilled Cheese. And uh, the reason I was named Grilled Cheese was because every day I brought grilled cheese to lunch. I loved it, it was cold, and I ate it and loved it. And um, my, 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 it's kind of gross. Um, I don't even know that we had a little cooler pack, so I'm surprised I didn't get sick every day, but um, bring, bring grilled cheese. My best friend in fourth grade was roast beef. I, I bet you can guess what he ate every day at lunch. Roast beef sandwich, right? So you all have that friend in the group that gives nicknames. Jesus, he'd give nicknames. James and John, sons of thunder. That's an awesome nickname. I would love that nickname. What's your nickname? Son of thunder. He looks at Peter. Peter makes this bold statement, this clarified confession of the identity of who Jesus is. And Jesus goes, I have a new name for you. Your name is Peter. In the original language, it's the word Petros, which literally means little pebble. How's that for a nickname? Sons of Thunder, Little Pebble. (laughs) Peter's not getting that tattooed on him. It's your new nickname, Little Pebble. Hey, don't you have something better, Jesus? Something better than Little Pebble? He goes, hey, you're Little Pebble. You're Little Pebble, but I love this. He goes, goes, but I'm the Petros, which is very similar to Little Pebble in sound, but it means something totally different. He goes, he goes, I'm the rock, I'm the immovable mountain, I am the immovable rock, I am the unshakable one. And Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, I know you're here in this world of confusion. He goes, but don't underestimate what God can do when a small person puts their faith in a big God. When a little pebble stakes all of his hope on an immovable mountain of Christ. He goes, because I can build something right there that the gates of Hades can't stop. 
He goes, your, your clarity, it is supernatural. Your, your clarity, it is powerful. Your clarity, it is countercultural. How, how do you see countercultural there in the text? So, you know, like in, in the days of Jesus, folks would come to Caesarea Philippi and they were convinced that the gates of Hades were the most powerful place on earth. They were convinced that evil would win out, that cynicism would win out, that despair would win out. And guys, do you realize that as followers of Jesus, you've been marked with this like rebellious hope? You haven't just been marked with hope, you've been marked with rebellious hope, this hope that says, I'm gonna rebel in the face of a world that believes the outcome is gonna be despair and brokenness and evil and cynicism. The narrative of the world then and the narrative of the world now is that, the, is that things are just gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until evil wins. And the narrative of the scriptures is that things will get harder and harder and harder and harder and in the midst of it, the church is gonna rise up to be more glorious and more glorious and more glorious and more glorious and in the backdrop of darkness will be the beauty of light and as people of God, we live as rebellious dealers of hope. And he goes, when you confess, when you proclaim, when you declare the true identity of the Son of God in the context of your confused culture, Jesus says, I can show up and do something right there. Don't, under, don't underestimate what happens when a small pebble can put their faith in a big God. He goes, I'll build something that the world can't stop. Now look at the moment that we're in, it's just dominated by confusion and, and chaos. And there's all of these perspectives on, on Jesus. Maybe this is true of you. Maybe this is true of your friends or roommates or family members, but people all over our city, even in the context of our church who'd go, yeah, Jesus is, he's nice and he's peace loving and he's wonderful and he's powerful. And guys, I just want to tell you, if you adopt that false view of Jesus, then you empower yourself to take him or leave him. If Jesus is just another teacher on the spiritual buffet of human enlightenment, then you pick and choose the parts that you like. You mix it in with a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and you end up with a worldview that suits all of your needs and desires. And before you know it, God is pleased with everything that you're pumped about. And when you admire Jesus, but you misunderstand Jesus, you set yourself up and you set those around you up for so much heartache, pain, and confusion. But guys, what God can do in the world when someone like you and someone like me, when a group of us gently and compassionately and kindly raise up when we hear the beckoning of creation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, when, when we raise up and we go, no, Jesus is not a nice guy who did some good things a long time ago. Jesus Christ is God. He's God and he came to earth in the form of humanity 2,000 years ago. Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. He lived a sinless life. Guys, I wanna be so clear on this. Sinless life, never said anything bad, never did anything bad, never thought anything bad, never did anything good for the wrong motives. I can't make it to lunch with his track record. Unbelievable. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, 33 years old, died a sinner's death, 
Buried in a tomb he did not own, the God of creation, crucified on a tree that he spoke into existence, laid in a cave that he had spoken into existence before human beings ever saw it for three days in darkness. And then the Spirit of God raises him to life where for 40 days he goes around proving his physical resurrection, teaching on the kingdom of God, returns to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, where we are awaiting as his people for the day when he comes back, puts his feet on the earth, raises the living and the dead, judges, he will send some to eternal separation, some to eternal glory with his father. This is the real, non-ignorable, unmistakable Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And something happens when men and women have the courage at the headwaters of cultural confusion, not to water him down, not to stick our head in the sand, not to keep it to ourselves, not to live in the cul-de-sac of comfortable Christianity, but to go, no, I was put on the earth to be a blessing to God and a blessing to the people around me. And that blessing, that breakthrough in confusion comes in the confession of the person of Jesus. And I go, how's that work? It's the great mystery of God. That when a little pebble like you, like you and like me and like us, boldly declares and puts our faith in the immovable mountain of Christ, something changes. And all of a sudden in our workplace and on our college campuses and in our neighborhoods, we're no longer these like undercover, like religious people going, hey, let's just keep all this to ourselves. Let's not rock the boat. But we all of a sudden begin to realize that truth is the ultimate act of love, that truth is the ultimate act of grace, that truth is the key that unlocks the prison of the human soul, that it's a blessing to bring truth into a community, into a moment, into a circumstance, into a culture. And we come with gentleness and kindness and humility, but spirit-filled truth and we go, this is who he is. And this is what he's doing. And guys, when we live that way, God does immeasurably more than we know how to ask or imagine. When we live this way, we begin to steward our time and our energy and our sexuality and our resources differently. When we live this way, we're no longer fearful of pleasing people but we desire to bless people even if they don't feel pleased with us. Guys, all the time I hear Christians going, man, if I say this at work, if I do this, if I do this, I'm gonna get canceled. Guys, let me be very clear. You telling the truth about Jesus might get you canceled. Jesus telling the truth got him killed. If our greatest desire in life is to be received and approved of and celebrated by and loved and loved by the culture, we actually lose the firepower to bless and love and encourage and speak truth. But when you see Christ high and lifted up and you go, okay, I'm surrounded by all of the stuff of Caesarea Philippi and nobody here thinks what I think, but I see Christ high and lifted up. When you see Christ and you speak Christ and you name Christ, he doesn't just honor himself and bless you, but he breaks the chains for the people around you. 
And this is what happens in our community. We're a confessing community because we believe confession of Christ breaks the grip of confusion in a culture. And so when we baptize you, it's do you declare with your mouth in front of all of these people that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the Messiah? So it happens when we receive communion every week. Communion is an act of confession. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. he says, when you break the bread and take the cup, you are proclaiming Christ. You are confessing Christ. This is an act of joyful, hope-filled rebellion, both in our world and to the heavenly powers and principalities. And then we go from here into our workplaces and our schools and our neighborhoods and our families with joy and humility and boldness, knowing that God wants to use you. And so what's it mean to be on a journey of faith? Man, it means that we are the people of God called out. It means that we are the people of God that enter into the uncomfortable realities of life so we can grow. And it means that we are the people of God that in the midst of a confused culture, stand up and gently but boldly confess the reality of Christ. And so here's what I wanna invite you to do this morning. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. And I'm just gonna invite you, we're, gonna, we're just gonna practice confessing Christ together this morning and then we're gonna receive communion. And we're gonna worship together. If you wanna receive prayer, there's some men and women that would love to pray over you at the respond banner. But I just wanna invite you right now to close your eyes and I'm gonna invite you to repeat some phrases. And for some of you, this might not be true of you. And I wanna encourage you, if, if it's not true of you, to just sit and to listen and to think about what it is that we're declaring. There's some of you this morning that you're ready to confess Christ and to be baptized, to be filled with the Spirit. We'd love to help you take that step. But just as a community, we're just gonna declare who Christ is. And so I just invite you to close your eyes, repeat these words after me. Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah. Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah. We believe you are the Son of the living God. We believe you lived a sinless life. We believe you died a sinner's death. We believe you were raised to life on the third day. We believe that you are alive and seated at the right hand of God. We believe that you will physically return to judge the living and the dead. And we believe that you are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords eternal. Amen. Hey, I love you. Let's go. Let's practice proclamation. Let's practice confession. Let's go to the communion tables. Let's receive the bread. Let's receive the cup. You can get in groups. You can share. You can pray. You can confess. There's men and women that would love to pray over you. I love you all. Let's receive communion together.